to open our Bibles to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Those of you that are just joining us, that's for your benefit. Everyone else knows we're going to be here forever. Well, not quite, but a good while. <laughs> We've been studying it for a while. I'd like you to join me in prayer as uh, we begin this morning and just pray for some of the things that have been mentioned. Father, we come to you this morning in Jesus' name. We thank you for the wonderful privilege that we have of gathering here, of coming into this place freely and coming to worship together and to sing your praise. We thank you for the beautiful day that it is outside and and, uh, holds forth for being at least for a few more hours. And we are grateful, Lord, for your love to us in so many ways. We want to remember Jeter and Laura Livingston this morning in Cote d'Ivoire and to remember um, those who are at the seminary there, many of them from other countries even studying. It is our understanding that the Civil War continues to rage The sitting president has even been so presumptuous as to bomb the French embassy in order to prevent evacuation. And uh, what is going on there, Lord, is terrible indeed. And we hear that even though relief funds have been distributed to the seminary students, they are not able to leave the um, relative Uh, safety of the area even to buy food and they're beginning to be hungry. Lord, we pray for that situation and for your followers, those who are preparing to lead your church. Oh God, that you would bring your mercy and grace upon them and in this trial of faith that they would be strengthened and encouraged to look to you. Father, we thank you for uh, Laura's uh, good experiences recently, and we remember to pray, Father, for Jesse and for Judy, that you would put your hand upon their lives as well. Father, Paula is waiting to hear what the outcome of her testing is going to be and the solution for her knee and We just ask you to surround her with your grace, and and you're the great physician. Touch her body. We pray this morning, Father, for our brother Jim, who has lost his dear wife Mary this past week. Not really lost her. She's in your presence, but separated from him for this season. And the grief that comes with that separation. And we remember Father um, Rob and Katie and Kelsey who are also suffering in the death of their mom. That you would just especially comfort and encourage them. Now Father, we want to ask that you open your word and speak to our hearts. That we truly become delighted in the truths that you express to us this morning through this study of Christ in Genesis 1-3. to We ask it in his precious name. Amen. As we uh, look at Christ in Genesis this morning, I just want to take a few moments and give you um, a little bit of a, a general introduction and uh, maybe uh, touch some things. What I'm about to say is not going to necessarily apply to every single one of you because while you come here on Sunday and you study the scriptures and and you read devotional literature and whatever, you may not be reading theological books or attending theology classes or Bible classes, but I know that some do and uh, some who listen on the internet do. And I just want to say that there is a tendency in contemporary scholarship at least that I have perceived, that looks at the individual books of the Bible as if they were standalone units. In other words, 
in analyzing the text or uh, getting into the text, they tend to look at uh, Matthew's Gospel. Or they look at the writings of John. John's Gospel, his first letters, John 1, 2, and 3, and the book of Revelation. Or they look at the Pentateuch, or they... They look at the authorship of Samuel or something. In other words, it's kind of like taking a microscope and analyzing the text. I think there's a little word um, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer on the front of your bulletin this morning that reminds us that it is not wrong to study the Bible in this way. But you're not going to reap the rich spiritual blessing that God has if that's all you ever do. And the tendency in doing that is to forget that the Bible really only has one author. He is the Holy Spirit. And he has written a seamless book. Despite 40 authors, despite 1,600 years, despite 66 different volumes within the, the Bible, the books of the Bible, it is a seamless whole. And the Holy Spirit has woven together the revelation of truth in such a way that those who approach the Bible reverentially with reverence and humility, and ask the Holy Spirit to explain it. We'll find that He takes Scripture here and Scripture there and Scripture from some other place and begins to connect the dots in ways that our eyes and hearts are open to the whole truth of God that He wants us to understand. And so I give you that background this morning because as we look at Christ in Genesis I I want to be honest and say that if the only portion of Scripture you were ever exposed to today were Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you would not necessarily pick up all that I'm about to say. In other words, if you didn't have any other revelation, what I'm going to tell you about Jesus Christ in these chapters would, would sort of be lost on you. But when you take Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and look at it in the context of the whole of Scripture. It is the fuller revelation that we have in the New Testament looking back that shows us all of the ways Christ appears in these early verses and chapters. And if, in fact, every important teaching of the Bible has its seeds in Genesis then, in fact, the truth about Jesus Christ is there as well. So, I I want us to recognize that this morning. And I I want us to see that sometimes the, the types or the analogies that the Scripture legitimately gives us are, first of all, revealed in the Old Testament, kind of in hidden terms, and then uncovered in the New Testament in plain terms, and when you put the two together, you get a much more complete understanding of the whole. For example, Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And the Pharisees kind of said, yeah, they've been working on this temple for 40 years. Talking about Herod's temple, where the center of Jewish worship was to take place. And then John says, but Jesus was not talking about that temple. He was talking about his body. That if his body were crucified, he would raise it up in three days. And so we automatically learn from John's revelation that Jesus was speaking to us about his body, which was the temple of God. And then you go back to the Old Testament tabernacle, and you see the outer court and the holy place and the holy of holies, the the building that was inside, and you, you suddenly realize that our bodies, that temple was a picture where the outer court is the body and the holy place is where... 
I live in my body, my mind, and my will, and all of that. And the Holy of Holies is where the Spirit of God dwells. And I was made to be the living temple of God. And, and when you put it all together, it's like, whoa, okay. And then with that information, you can actually go back to the tabernacle in the wilderness and God's revelation of the plan and begin to understand yourself better by studying how the tabernacle was designed. It's like, whoa, there's all kind of insight there. So, so here we go this morning. We're going to go back to Genesis and we're going to look at Christ in Genesis. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, but we're going to recognize that it is in the full revelation of Scripture that we have this understanding from the beginning. Look at Genesis chapter 1, and follow with me the words of Moses. Hmm. The words of Moses as he reveals to us creation in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was brooding over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Verse 6, then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Verse 9, then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and the dry land appear. Verse 14, then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. Verse 20, then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and Birds fly above the earth in the expanse of the heavens. Verse 24, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures. You notice that in all of these places, as things begin to happen, as things come into existence, they do so because God has spoken. He has said something. Now, the other thing I wanted to mention in my introduction, and I'll sneak it in here, is I'm not really going to be telling you anything new this morning. If you've been here any length of time at all, everything I'm going to say this morning is probably something you've heard before. And as I was working on this sermon and kind of putting it together, I thought, it's going to sound like I'm repeating myself. And and if, you know, you could start worrying about me. But I just want you to know this morning that I know that I'm repeating myself. And if you know you're repeating yourself, it's okay. It's when you don't know that you're repeating yourself that you're starting to get into trouble. So I know I'm repeating myself. But the difference is I'm bringing all of this teaching together and and pulling it together in one umbrella. And I want to see Christ in these these pages. And And we find in the first chapter that every time God makes something happen, He does so by speaking. If you turn to John's Gospel, and I printed these verses out for you, but if you want to see them right in your own Bible, if you turn to John's Gospel, chapter 1, you find a similar kind of story, a similar kind of narrative. In the beginning was the... Word. What do you do when you speak? You use words. <clears throat> you speak words. <clears throat> Otherwise, it's not speaking. It's called yelling or shouting or squealing or something else. But if you're speaking, you're using words. And we find in John's Gospel that Jesus Christ is the Word. As we delve into chapter 1 of John's Gospel... He's talking about the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, glory as of an only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So that as God spoke in Genesis, He was speaking the Word of power that effected creation. And in John's Gospel, we are told that Jesus is that Word. In the beginning was the Word. 
the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, I want to pause there just a moment and just remind us of who Jesus is. Because we know from reading the rest of chapter 1 that John is talking about Jesus Christ, the one who came in the flesh. He's saying in the beginning, he was with God. The way that the Greek structure of these phrases is arranged, this first phrase says that Jesus Christ was face to face with the Father. That he was with God. And that withness implies equality. That Jesus Christ was with the Father in essence, in communion, in His essential nature. If there's any question about what John means by that in the next phrase, he highlights it. He says, in case you didn't get what I was saying, the Word was God. Now, the verb that he uses there, was, does not emphasize the fact as much as it emphasizes the timelessness of the Word. You follow me? It does make the statement that God equals the Word, the Word equals God, the Word was God. That, that statement of fact is being made. But the emphasis is being placed on the time frame. And the choice of verb tense that John uses is one that is continuous action in the past time. Action that is open-ended. Action that is ongoing. It is underscoring the eternal reality of the Word who is God. That Jesus Christ with the Father always was and always will be and presently is because He is God. Now, lest we have any lingering doubt, we find in verse 3, well, in verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by or through Him. And apart from Him, Nothing came into being that has come into being. In other words, He is actually the agency of creation. Everything made came to be because of Jesus Christ. It is appropriate to speak of Him as the Creator. And this further underscores His deity. Jehovah's Witness will often show up at your doorstep. If they haven't been by lately, perhaps you'll get a visit in the future. And they will come to your doorstep, and if they get into a discussion with you, they will attempt to convince you that Jesus is not God. And they will frequently turn to this passage and try to do that. And in perfectly terrible Greek that they have been misinformed by their teachers, they will try to tell you that the Word was not the God, but a God. And then they will want to convince you that He was the first created being, after which all other things were made. But read the Bible. You don't even have to know Greek or grammar to get this. All you have to do is look at the words. All things were made by Him. What does that include? All things. Is anything left out of all things? So if it was made, He made it. The brick wall is tumbling down. The walls of Jericho are collapsing in the back. 
If it was made, <laughs> I didn't know that I had such projection to my voice. <laughs> Are you with me? If it was made, he made it. Could he have been made if he made everything that was made? Well, just in case, just in case you don't have it down yet, John says it the other way. Look at the next phrase. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. What does that include? Everything that was made, nothing came into being apart from Him. He made it all. Jesus Christ is the Creator. He is with God. He is God. He is of God's essence. He is of God's character. He is of God's nature. He is an only begotten of the Father. Some people say, well, wait a minute, doesn't that imply that He was made? No, no, no. That implies that He is of the same nature as the Father. Who can be I exactly like God's nature? No one but God. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says He is the exact representation of His nature and the radiance of His glory. Because He Himself is God. Jesus said to His disciples, If you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. For I and My Father are one. See, there's no question. Jesus Christ is fully, completely, totally, absolutely, undeniably divine. He is God. And we find Him in Genesis acting as the very Creator. He is God Almighty who eventually comes in human flesh. And the Scripture says in Matthew, and you will call His name Emmanuel, which means God tabernacling living with us in the flesh. God is with us in the flesh. So, the first thing we learn about Jesus in Genesis chapter 1 is that He is fully God. He is fully divine. And then, as we look at the creation of Adam, we find in Adam a type of Jesus Christ. Now, when I say type, I don't mean a kind of or what. I mean a type in the technical sense that when you look at Adam, he specifically represents elements of the nature of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh. Adam, when you look at his creation and his the things surrounding him, when you look at Adam, it's speaks to us of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you doubt me in that, Paul actually says that in those words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he says that Jesus Christ is the second man and the last Adam. In other words, the New Testament clearly identifies this relationship. There are certain things that Adam did that Jesus also did as the second man. And there are certain things that Adam was to the human race that Jesus became to the human race as the last Adam. So there is a correlation between Adam and Christ in their person and in their work. Now we're not speaking of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in His deity, but we're speaking of Him in His humanity. Because the Jesus who was born to the Virgin Mary and raised in Nazareth and appeared in public ministry upon this earth, 
was also fully human. The Son of God became man and dwelt among us. So, what are the similarities? Well, first of all, you remember, and you probably should have memorized this by now, Genesis 1 or 2, 7, And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became, Adam became a living soul. Okay? This tells us that God created Adam, by the way, from no pre-existing form of life. He scooped some dirt up. The word in Genesis, we've already learned, actually refers to agricultural kind of soil. And when Adam is banned from the garden, he goes back to the dirt from which he was created to to work out his living. There's, there's some significance there. So Adam is formed from the material substance of the earth and shaped into a man. And he becomes, by the Spirit of God breathed into him, a living soul. Likewise, we find in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 20, But when he had considered this, speaking of Joseph, thinking about divorcing Mary, because if you were engaged and you broke it off, they called that divorce in those days. When he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because that which has been conceived in her is out of the Holy Spirit. We're being told something important here. We're being told that God has done it again. That the Spirit of God has taken material substance and formed another man. And that He has placed that formed substance into the womb of Mary. The wording is quite unique. That which is in her, speaking of the substance in her womb, that which is in her is, and pardon me for relying so heavily on the Greek this morning, but the, the language is important and I want you to understand it. The word is ek. It means to come out of. When it says Jesus cast out demons, the word is ekbalo. He cast them out. The word ek means something that comes from here and goes out to there. And the actual meaning of the scripture is that the Holy Spirit, out of himself, formed a substance and put it In Mary's womb. So that he could become the second man. See, the Bible is not speaking mysteriously here. It's speaking plainly here. Jesus is the second man. Adam was the first. He's the second. And that is important to us uh, for a number of reasons. But one of the things that it clears up for us here, and and you've heard me speak of this before, this is part of the repetitious part, but Mary did not contribute to the humanity of Jesus any more than Joseph did. She is not the mother of God in that sense of the word. She did not give him 23 chromosomes. She gave him a womb. The Holy Spirit planted in her the second man who was formed and shaped in the womb and born into this world of a virgin mother. Ladies, I hate to break the news to you, but even though Adam takes the responsibility for sin, you do not escape it. I was taught in some of my theology classes that sin is passed on through the man. That's how come Mary could have a baby that had no sin. The Catholics were a little bit ahead of us on this score. 
um, because they understood that women also have a sin nature, and, and you do, in case you didn't know that. I just thought I would clear that up. We share that together. And the Roman Catholic Church trying to solve the problem of, how, well, how could Mary contribute half to Jesus if she had sinned? Well, we've got to get her sinless. And so they came up with, and, and I mean came up with, they invented the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary so that they could get her to be sinless because they understood the predicament. If Mary contributed to the body of Christ, she had to be sinless in order for him to be sinless. But the truth of the matter is, she did not contribute to the body of Christ any more than Joseph did. 23 chromosomes don't make a human being. I've had Protestant theologians argue with me this subject and say, wait a minute, that can't be because he wasn't human if he didn't have part of Mary. Well... Come on, he wasn't human if he didn't have a whole fertilized egg. You can't have half and still have a human if you're going to make it that way. And I don't even want to go where that could take you. What we have is clearly the Virgin Mary, a virgin so that there would be no question as to his divine origin. There was nothing sinful about sex. There was nothing sinful about conception. The, the process is something God designed before the fall. There's no sin there. That's not the issue. But so that the world would know that this person born into this planet is of divine origin. This wasn't someone that was dubbed the Son of God. He is the Son of God, and He came through a virgin womb so that there could be no question about His origin, but He was shaped by the Holy Spirit and placed in Mary, just like Adam was shaped by the Spirit of God and breathed the breath of life into Him. And Adam became a living soul, and Jesus became a living human being. Also, like Adam, Jesus is the firstborn of a whole race. What happened with Adam and Eve? They started having children. And look at where that's gotten us. We have a world filled with their children. Seven billion of them, I think, at last count. They've had lots of children over time, and a whole race has developed. But this is also true of Jesus Christ. He is the firstborn among many brethren. And he says to his disciples, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit has fallen upon you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost part of the earth. Preach this gospel to the end of the age. I will be with you always, wherever you go. Baptize the nations. Teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. Make disciples everywhere you go so that people who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are born again into the family of God and become part of the kingdom of God. A whole new race. Peter tells us we're a kingdom of priests. That we are made like unto Him in all of these respects. That we are born again with a new nature. In fact, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. There's a total transformation here. And so Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren and sister. You're not left out. That's just the generic grammar. He is the first to come from the grave. And He has been made, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, a life-giving Spirit. And when you are born again, 
you join a new race of humanity that will live forever as the family of God. Like Adam, he started a whole new race. Now, also like Adam, his choice has changed our essential nature. What do I mean by that? Well, and again, I'm going to bore you for just a moment with a little bit of theology, the the technical kind, and then I'm going to come back to, to the real good stuff. But I was taught in some of my theology classes that Jesus, or that Adam, was the federal head of the race. You know what we mean by that? Well, we have a federal government. And when you have a federal government, a republic, you elect congressmen or senators to go to Washington and make decisions for you. And they go up there and they do their thing. And guess what? You have to live with what they decide. That's why you get to vote on them, because they make your choices for you. And uh, maybe it does good to write them, maybe it doesn't. I'm not going to get into that debate this morning, but, but they're making choices for you. And I was kind of taught that Adam was the federal head of the race. In other words, God said, okay, Adam, here's the deal. I'm going to make you, I'm going to make Eve, I'm going to put you in this garden, and I'm going to give you a time period, I'm going to give you a testing period. And um, you get to make the choice for the whole race about sin. And whatever choice you make will be true of all the rest of them. And so uh, Adam chose sin. And now we have to live with it. We got blamed for his choice. You know, that bothered me the first time I ever heard it. And, and even a third grader knows there's something not fair about that. I wasn't there. I didn't have anything to do with that snake and that tree. Why did I get blamed for what he did? In fact, there are some who thought that thing through a little bit, and they came up with actually some heresies to solve the problem. Pelagius and and his crowd said, Well, I think this is the way it happens. Every human being that's born is really born without sin, but then they get to make a choice. And when they kind of come to the age of moral responsibility, then they get to choose. And, and, and so, unfortunately, they all make the wrong choice, but they, they still get a choice, and every man is, is, is his own Adam. Because they, they didn't think it was fair either. But see, that's heretical, because the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible does, in fact, teach that every one of us inherit the sin nature. We're born in sin. We're all born in sin. And what Adam did, did affect me. But I want to tell you this morning that God doesn't blame you for Adam's choice. And it's important to make that distinction. That's why some weeks ago I gave you the disease model as an analogy. Because we can understand, even though it still doesn't seem fair, it does make sense, that if a mother has AIDS, she can give that to her unborn child. We understand how we can pass on a virus. There are certain diseases that you can give to your children because you got them. And even though the child did not make a choice that caused them to become infected, they have inherited the choice of their mother and dad. And it's being passed on because it's like an infection. And friends... What I want you to see this morning is, God's not being unfair. God did warn Adam that when you eat of this tree, you're going to die. It's going to change your nature. And there's a whole lot wrapped up in that. Because when Adam sinned, he did change his nature. He died. He died spiritually. He eventually died physically. A whole bunch of changes occurred within his person and in his nature and within Eve. And when babies are conceived by their parents, God gave us the capacity to procreate in total. You know, if you 
If you go back to Genesis and get your doctrine straight, so much other stuff will make good sense. Okay? God does not add the soul to an embryo at some point while it's developing. Do you know why? Because he gave Adam and Eve the capacity to reproduce human beings. And a human being is a body, a soul, and a spirit. I'll give you another reason why. It's not your body that has the sin problem. It's your soul that has the sin problem. Your body is infected in that, but, but your soul has the problem. And if, oh, say about five months gestation, God dropped in a soul from this soul bank up in heaven somewhere, where did the sin nature come from in that soul? God doesn't make things defective. God did not create a sinful soul. He doesn't drop a sinful soul into a person developing in the womb. So where did it come from? Came came from his parents. What does that mean? That means that the, the, the fifth graders and down have already gone to their class. So I'm going to say clearly, that means that when sperm penetrates the wall of the egg and fertilizes it, that is a whole person. That is a whole person. If you interrupt its development, you have murdered a human being. There's no other way to look at it. Because there is not some later time when it becomes human. It is human from the instant of conception. And that human that is conceived has a body already seeded with death, a soul that is infected by sin, and a spirit that is cut off from God, spiritually dead, because of Adam's infection transmitted to the whole race. Do you see why we need a Savior? We need our heavenly Jesus, the divine doctor, to come and give us the treatment, the remedy for sin to pour over us His blood and cleanse us because we are born with the problem. It's not because Adam got to decide for everybody. It's that Adam's decision has affected everybody. And we need a remedy. We need a solution. So just as Adam caused a whole race to be born, and that race is now infected with His nature, so Jesus Christ transforms our nature. When we come to faith in Him and put our faith in Him and we're born again, the Scripture says, as we pointed out last week, we are made partakers of the divine nature. God puts His Holy Spirit inside of us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 He has given us His Spirit as a down payment, a deposit, an earnest of our salvation. We are invested with the Holy Spirit. We are born again. We come to life. And guess what? We're never going to die again. We're going to live forever. Because he that lives and believes in me will never die, Jesus said to Martha. Do you believe it? I am the resurrection and the life. We have a life in Jesus Christ. Our nature is changed. We're new creations. 2 Corinthians 5.17, I've already quoted. We're brand new. See, I just want you to know. I, I know what I've repeated. Just in case you're doubting. We're brand new people. Because of Jesus Christ, we're born into the family of God. Eternal life has already begun. We have been changed in our essential being. 
We're transformed. We have undergone metamorphosis. And now we are being remade in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Yes, sir. Believers die in their body, but they never die in their spirit. In fact, Todd, when the day comes and your body quits, you won't hardly even know it in your soul. You're going to just open your eyes and see God. And you'll just, you'll be the same old Todd. Well, sort of. <clears throat> There's going to be some nice changes that you're going to really like. <clears throat> you're going to be fixed because you're going to look on Him and, and, and everything is going to be new and wonderful because we don't stop living because of Jesus Christ. Another very fascinating corollary to Adam. I don't want to push this too far lest we get into error. You know, you know that's heresy, truth, pushed out of balance. <laughs> I don't want to push this too far. But you know how God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he took stuff from his side, and he made what? A bride. Yeah, well, yeah her name was Eve, but she was a bride for, for Adam. And when Jesus Christ hung on the cross of Calvary, and his body was crucified, and his blood was spilled, and the soldier <clears throat> thrust that spear into his side and outflowed the water and the blood. In the death of Christ, there was the potential for the bride. And it was through the cross, the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame. He is now seated at the right hand of God. You and I are that joy for which Jesus died. We are the bride of Christ. And it was through the crucifixion, it was through His death, from His broken body, the bride of Christ is formed. There's rich typology, rich symbolism in the creation of Eve from the side of Adam and we have come from the very lifeblood and death of Jesus Christ. We are His bride made out of His broken body. Isn't that amazing? That we might be whole. And one day, He's going to come back. Now, I want to remind you that when God made Adam and Eve, when we come to the end of chapter 1, <clears throat> what did he said? say to them? Here's the world. It's yours. I made it for you. Rule over it. Have dominion. Have, you have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the things that creep around on the earth. You're in charge. This is your world. You have the authority. Love your world. Enjoy your world. I made it for you. One day Jesus is coming back. As King of kings and Lord of lords, he's going to plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. He's going to set up a kingdom called the Millennial Reign. And Isaiah tells us that kingdom is going to have some peculiar and interesting properties. He tells us, for example, that if a person dies at the age of 100, it'll be like their life was cut short in their youth. He tells us that babies will be able to play with snakes and not get bit. He tells us that wolves and lambs will lie down to rest together. When have you ever seen that? He tells us that a little child is going to lead the lions and the oxen together to go out to pasture, to graze. That all the carnivores of the planet are going to change to omnivores. For those of you that don't remember your biology, the flesh eaters are going to become plant eaters. And that the whole nature of the world is going to be changed when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is on the throne. I want to ask you a question. Is he reigning as God or as man? Think about your answer. King of Kings and Lord of Lords is a human designation. Eternal Father, Mighty God. Now that's a divine designation. But King of kings and Lord of lords is a human. He is the King of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. He comes back, Jesus Christ, the glorious man. And He plants His feet on this planet. 
And he establishes the rightful rule and rightful reign that he has purchased through the cross as he defeated the powers of darkness, wiped out the works of the devil. He will come back as the rightful heir of this planet and reign as Adam should have done. He will reign as man in all of his created splendor. And we will be co-regents with him in this glorious millennial kingdom. He is fully God. Do not misunderstand. He is fully God. He is totally divine. But his reign upon this planet during the millennial kingdom as King of kings and Lord of lords will be in the capacity as exalted, resurrected man. Because he has taken on that persona for all of eternity and accepted our nature along with his divine nature. And like Adam should have done, he will do. We are going back to Eden. That is the process of redemption. And then at the end of Revelation, beyond, as we go into the glorious paradise of God. Finally, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, we have this account. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, when we get there, there are some verses in the Bible that are just full of meaning. They're short. They're to the point. But if you have any imagination at all, you know that they call to mind a world of things. Take the shortest verse in the Bible, for example. Jesus has come back. He has said those glorious words to Mary and Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. He has explained to them who he is. They go to the tomb where Lazarus has been buried. And in Jewish culture, the mourners are there, the family and the friends, and, and they're wailing and weeping. And Mary and Martha come to the tomb, and they're sobbing. It doesn't matter what he said, our brother is in this tomb. And everybody's heart is broken. You kind of get the impression that Lazarus was really quite a guy. And people loved him. And Mary and Martha loved him. The shortest verse in the scripture, Jesus wept. What do you think that means? And that's it? Just one sob? I think he stood there and cried with them. I think his heart was breaking. I think seeing their sadness and, and, and the... The tragedy of death evoked in him a world of emotion that came out in that moment. He wept with them. He entered fully into their sorrow. Two words, world of, of, of implication. Even though he knew he was about to call Lazarus out of the tomb. Because the scene was a human drama unfolding that has happened to all of us. And I'm so glad that verse is there because it tells me how Jesus feels when I stand before an open grave. It tells me how he feels. He's weeping. This was not the way he made it. Something has gone wrong. Now, we come back to Genesis 3.21. Allow me a little bit of sanctified imagination. Can I take you back a bit in chapter 3? And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. What does that imply? Is God everywhere present? Isn't he? Come on, you know the answer to that. This, this is simple. Is God everywhere present? He's, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere present. Are there some places where he is specifically more obviously present? Yes, there are. 
in the wilderness, the Shekinah glory cloud, the, the glorious presence of God, was localized to a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They could see it. God is everywhere present, but they could see that cloud. They knew He was really manifested right there. And when the tabernacle was finished, that cloud came and filled the Holy of Holies and rested there. Okay? So in Genesis, we have the sound of God walking. Now, if I had on some of my shoes this morning that have wooden heels and I came walking in the foyer, you could kind of tell where I was by whether my footsteps were getting closer or further. You could hear that. I would be localized. Are you with me? This I'm trying to take you somewhere, so but I gotta get you I gotta get you on board. God is physically present in the garden, specifically in one location. Could have been Jesus in his pre incarnate form. He is now standing in front of Adam and Eve. And they've been trying to keep those fig leaves in place the whole time they've been having the conversation because they're woefully inadequate. And God is there with them in some kind of manifestation. See it in your mind's eye. I try to enter sometimes into the heart of God and see if I can catch His feeling. As he calls to himself an animal, perhaps a lamb, there's been no death. There's been no fear. All the animals are pets. The lamb looks up with adoring eyes at its maker. And he takes that lamb and rips open its throat and the blood pours out. And Adam and Eve, if they haven't before, suddenly see the ugliness of their sin. And if this is Jesus in the flesh, He is looking down through history at the time when He will be ripped asunder on the cross and His blood will be spilled because He is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. And this animal is sacrificed And the skin is torn off of it to cover them. Warm, bloody, but adequate to cover their shame. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. And in that one verse, God makes clear the message. Without the shedding of blood, there is no covering for sin. And He, the Bible tells us, is the propitiation. That long, difficult word that is only used three times in the New Testament means that Jesus Christ is the satisfactory appeasement of God's wrath. That He is the one who somehow meets the requirements of a holy God who must punish sin. And when God looked at Jesus upon the cross, all the anger left Him as it was poured out upon His only Son, the sin-bearer. And you and I could be not just covered, 
but cleansed. And we could approach him with boldness and call him Father. And all through history, from the garden until the cross, with the sacrifice of every sin offering, there was the reminder that without the shedding of blood, there is no covering for sin. Until Jesus came. And there needs to be no more sacrifice. Because he has paid the price. The blood of bulls and goats could never take it away. It could only cover it over. But Jesus has taken it away. And you, the scripture says, were redeemed. Not with perishable things. But with the precious blood. Of the Lamb of God. All of this we see in Genesis. Our Savior, Redeemer, fully God, fully man, and the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. We have that in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you so much this morning for your love, for your amazing love. Thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who is totally God and yet totally human, who can span the distance, bridge the gap between God and man, you and me, and by His blood make a way for me to return, to be born again, redeemed, recovered, Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.